It's Wednesday, so you've got me. I'm Carousel Baird. Hey, you can listen to me any day of the week. You can listen online at WRTFM.org, at the A Public Affair podcast, or on the WORT smartphone app. If you like what you hear, click the donate button and support community media. Your donation makes a huge difference. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. We bring the truth to places. Hello, everybody, and welcome to A Public Affair. It's Wednesday, so that means you've got me. I'm your host today, Carousel Baird. And I, wanna, uh, and I want to remind you, if I can speak today, I want to remind you, you are listening to A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM Madison. Well, something extraordinary happened around a month ago. On December 19th, 2023, the Col- Colorado, I can't speak today, the Colorado Supreme Court ruled that Donald Trump cannot appear on the ballot for president in the state of Colorado. Uh, It was a four to three decision, and they relied on the 14th Amendment of the United States Constitution, saying that it prohibits people who engage in insurrection from holding public office. Uh, A couple weeks later, on December 28th, the secretary of state in Maine declared that Donald Trump cannot be on the ballot for the same reasons. This case has now been moved forward to uh, the U.S. Supreme Court. Donald Trump and his uh, team appealed it, and it is set to be heard. I think oral arguments are scheduled uh, in just a few weeks in February before the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, Of course, this throws everything into utter chaos. The 2024 presidential election is already underway. Um, The Iowa caucus has just happened this week where Donald Trump overwhelmingly won the Republican primary. Um, He received more than 50 percent of the vote. I think the exact number was 51 percent. So essentially what's happening is states across the country are reviewing lawsuits challenging whether the front runner for the Republican nomination of president has the ability to be on the ballot and whether putting him on the ballot violates the Constitution of the United States. Big, big issues to sort of talk about. We have two fabulous guests joining us today. First, we have Professor Mark Graber. He is a professor, um, a regents, the regents professor of law at the University of Maryland School of Law. Hello, Professor. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you. And then we have Amira Matar. She's counsel for free speech for people. Hello, Amira. I'm happy to be here. Hello. Hello. Thank you for joining us. So I want to sort of kick it off a little bit. Um, And we've talked on the show a lot about the 14th Amendment. And our regular listeners will know that I am an attorney. And uh, a lot of attorneys that work on civil rights issues cite to the 14th Amendment of the United States Constitution as something that gives rights to individuals um, and sort of propelled the civil rights law and uh, laws that we have across the country. And this is not a provision that I think about at all or even know what the heck what what law are we talking about that is prohibiting people from uh, being on the ballot? Professor Graver, you want to sort of kick us off and start us there? Well, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, somewhat ab- abbreviated version, says, if you were a person who holds an office or held an office that requires an oath of allegiance to the United States and you participated in an insurrection or rebellion, you can no longer hold state or federal office unless you get amnesty by a vote of two thirds of both houses of Congress. So that's the short version. And what's the history of this provision? I mean, I'm sure there's a long sort of story of why this got added and included as part of the 14th Amendment, which was created in response to the civil rights era the Civil War and the Civil Rights era and all of that? Well, interestingly enough, it's more accurate to ask why Section 1 got added because Section 3 was central to the Reconstruction Republicans who believed that you could have a paper declaration 
that slavery did not exist in the United States. But if federal and state governments were run by slaveholders, they would either ignore it or interpret it out of existence. Section 3 is part of an effort to get rid of what Republicans called the slave power, the Southern elite that held all the power in the South. It essentially said, if you're a member of the Southern elite and you held any office, military or civil, you were no longer qualified to exercise political power in the United States on the assumption that a new generation of leadership would be far more respectful of both the anti-slavery goals of the new constitution and the racial equality goals. And they didn't just say there, you know, if you ignore the law or if you violate the law, you are prohibited from holding um, electoral office. It specifically was if there's insurrection, there was concerns that, uh, Without that, people that were defying the um, declaration that there was no more slavery would all of a sudden get into office and reverse the laws. Is that what they were worried about? Well, there's a difference between a person who runs a red light, breaks the law, and pays their fine, and a person who resists federal law by force of violence. That's what an insurrection is. It's an assemblage that resists the law by force of violence for a public person. That if you are an elected official in democracy, you are committed to the law is the law that is made by people who are elected by persuasion and discussion. If you lose, your strategy is to fight again the next time at the ballot and not turn to violence as Southerners did in 1860. So any losing candidate who turns to violence to attempt to overturn an election or overturn a simple law, they are not the sort of persons Republicans wanted to be officials in the United States. Okay, so it's helpful to sort of get that background and understanding of why this is part of the U.S. Constitution. So. Amir, I sort of want to turn to you now and bring us back to here we are, 2023, when these lawsuits are being filed, these challenges to Donald Trump being uh, on ballots across the country. And my first thought when I heard the decision um, from the Colorado Supreme Court was how can they say that Donald Trump is an insurrectionist when he hasn't been convicted of being an insurrectionist. He may be charged with things, but no court anywhere has heard that he is an insurrectionist. How do you, um, Amira, sort of break down for how does the court start reviewing and determining if an individual is in violation of the 14th Amendment when there isn't a criminal conviction? To answer simply, a criminal conviction is not required for someone to be disqualified under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. The the provision that we're talking about is quite simple in how one can be disqualified, is that they have taken an oath to uphold office, they engaged in insurrection, and they broke that oath. It does not at all contemplate or require a conviction beforehand. And in fact, when you know, Professor Graber could probably speak about this a bit more. When Section 3 has been applied in the past, a conviction was not required. This is different than the federal crime of insurrection. That is a completely different part of the law. Here, this does not require a conviction. It does not require a court to have previously held that this person engaged in insurrection. It just requires that this person once took an oath to uphold the Constitution and then later violated that oath. And so I suppose then maybe if you had a criminal conviction, that would be evidence that you could submit to the court to to say, to help substantiate whether an insurrection happened. But then if not, what happened in this case and what would happen in any case is then you would have to submit evidence. Talk to me about then what 
was submitted and reviewed by um, the Colorado Supreme Court and why they concluded that, in fact, Donald Trump had committed insurrection. So the Colorado case was brought by an organization uh, known as Crew, uh, and they had essentially submitted what was public evidence that was available to most people. Uh, and that has to do with what we witnessed and watched on January 6, 2021, and the numerous congressional actions and reports that came out afterwards that identified this as you know a momentous moment in history when a force of violence was used to essentially keep Donald Trump's tenure in office. So a lot of it had to do with what we watched publicly, what was recorded publicly. Um, that had to do a lot with, for instance, the committee report that the uh, you know Congress had released about January 6th, detailing very much what happened during those uh, four hours when all of that happened, you know, the the um, protests at the eclipse, uh, when Donald Trump had taken the stage, his numerous calls to tell people to march to the Capitol, him sitting in the White House in his dining room table watching what happened silently for three hours, defying calls uh, to, to stop the violence. Uh, much of this evidence was was public. It was known. Um, and that is what many of the courts, including the Colorado Supreme Court, had considered uh, when considering this question. What I thought was really interesting, though, actually was not just the actions on January 6th, which absolutely are, you know, substantial and, you know, thoroughly documented in the fact that there's been studies and reviews and congressional studies and uh, uh, investigative studies and and many documents uh and videos and all of that. But I found it really telling that what happened on September, um, I'm sorry, on January 6th, in parts of the public is is under dispute of how to characterize it. I think um, it is accurate to characterize it as a riot uh, and insurrection. But some parts of the community uh, and of the U.S. and particularly followers of uh President Trump do not believe would not characterize it as that yet there was so much other evidence that I was really impressed by that okay even if you put January 6th aside not that the court says that but in my mind I say okay so even if we take January 6th and we put it aside there was so much more about right the false accusations and the intimidation um, of uh, election officials uh trying to sort of create fraudulent balance, the treatment of the vice president, the pressure for him to violate the Constitution, the bogus slate of electors, which has been a conversation here in Wisconsin because it included a bogus slate of electors here in Wisconsin. We've had many uh, shows and investigative reportings and repercussions here in Wisconsin because of that. It's just so many other things in addition to. Um, talk to me about about that how it it feels it was so fascinating to read the decision and to to see how overwhelming the court felt the evidence was so the organization i work for free speech for people has brought cases in a few different states in front of courts or ballot commissions that hear uh, disqualification questions and uh, the voters that we represent bring forth a complaint. And the complaint, as you said, is not just based on what happened on January 6th, but it uh, details a, a campaign by Donald Trump to extend his tenure in office, to extend his power um, in the White House. And it is exactly as you mentioned, the uh, slate of electors, the um, calls to the Justice Department, the pressure of elected officials to ensure that the certification doesn't doesn't happen. Um, so there is quite a lot outside of January 6th that is uh, included in these complaints that detail how January 6th ultimately was the culmination of Trump's campaign throughout those months when he realized he had was losing the election when he lost the election. This was kind of like a, a final attempt to hold the stake uh, into the White House. And as we saw, it was a devastating moment in yeah. our history where violence occurred. Federal building was <laughs> was absolutely damaged and people lost their lives. 
So January 6th can be considered, I think, the culmination of this, of this campaign to maintain power um, despite the people's voting of somebody else. Professor Graber, do you want to sort of chime in? What is your take on the evidence and how the um, Colorado Supreme Court interpreted uh, and determined that there was, in fact, insurrection? Well, a crucial element of insurrection is a self-conscious plan to use violence. One of the ways an insurrection differs from a riot is a riot is spontaneous. It's sort of like the difference between murder and manslaughter. I plan to kill someone. Someone says something, I'm so angry, I grab a metal rod and I hit down before I even think about it. So now the question is, what was Donald Trump doing when he gave the speech, which is, as Ms. Matar has noted, at the center of this. On the one version, he was saying, you know, I'm a little upset about things. You should be a little upset. You know, make your view known. On another version, this was part of an illegal effort to overturn the election. And like normal human beings and lawyers, what we do is, okay, let's look to see what Mr. Trump was doing before and after. Mm-hmm. If what he was doing before was giving Joe Biden congratulations, phone calls, saying to his supporters, we fought the good fight, we'll get them back in four years, we would presume that he had peaceful intentions. If he was doing everything in his power to illegally overturn the election, we would presume the speech was part of that effort. We then look at what Donald Trump did afterwards. If the minute those protesters crossed over to the Capitol, Trump got out of the car and said, what are you doing? Don't do this. This is illegal. Be peaceful. But if, in fact, Trump refused to use any of his powers for hours until it was clear what would fail, that is more evidence of his intentions. So the crucial question is, did Trump intend his speech to encourage people to engage in violent resistance to the federal law? If so, under traditional notions of insurrection, he is an insurrectionist. So you really focused a lot on what happened on September, I'm sorry, on January 6th. Do you feel that despite sort of, I was sort of saying, oh, I think there's more than that, but you're sort of reminding me that it's about the violence. Were his actions before January 6th insurrection actions? I should emphasize, by the way, I'm a legal historian. I actually don't focus nearly as much as Ms. Matar on the events of January 6, 2021, as the events in the 39th Congress, 1866. Okay. Now, from the perspective of the 39th Congress, 1866, if all Mr. Trump did was fraud, well, a classic insurrection requires violence not trickery. But from the perspective of 1866, fraud can be used as evidence of a state of mind. That is, was Donald Trump trying to illegally overturn the election? Mm -hmm. The fraud can be used for his state of mind when he gave the speech. But with some complicated exceptions that would require three programs to go through, mere fraud is not enough. So it would not be an insurrection if Donald Trump tinkered with a ballot box and simply got that false result. It'd be a crime. But I do not believe that would be a 19th century understanding of insurrection. It'd be something else. This is really helpful to sort of 
come full circle and and challenge a little bit the my initial thoughts and I think the initial thoughts of many people of he hadn't committed a crime how can you find him responsible to for you to remind us this isn't about committing a crime this is about where your actions you know insurrection or rebellion against you know the US government which is that is the violation of the 14th amendment and um Ms. Ms. Matar, Attorney Matar, do you want to sort of help? Can you help elaborate on that of what role did what happened on January 6th play? Um, is that really the crux of the argument or is it just one of the many pieces? It's certainly one of the many pieces. And as Professor Graber had mentioned, he's more into the historical aspect of it. But what's important to remember is we actually have recent legal precedent to work off of that helps us understand what it means for someone to have engaged in insurrection before Trump. Um, Free Speech for People, for instance, has brought cases against officials that we believe had engaged um, in insurrection on January 6, 2021, for instance, like Marjorie Taylor Greene. And in those cases, although that case ultimately lost and the court had determined that uh, Ms. Greene had not engaged in insurrection, given her role, we did get helpful precedent there about what it means. And there was um, important case law about, uh, for instance, giving marching orders, uh, it, being involved in ways that don't necessarily require taking up arms yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is very helpful. There's also more legal precedent from New Mexico, which is a case that, uh, again, I, as I had mentioned before, that Crew had litigated of a city commissioner who was very involved in January 6th and was there on the front lines that day. Um, so we have legal precedent to work off what engagement and in insurrection means. It doesn't mean necessarily taking up arms, but it could very much mean being, you know, the coordinator behind these things, being an instigator, um, being uh, certainly the one calling the shots or holding silent when the violence is happening. And. Tell us more about, yeah, go ahead, Professor Graber, please. If I could slip in, we're actually in heated agreement here. I love that. That is to say, for an insurrection to occur in the 19th century, there has to be violence somewhere. But the 19th century is also very clear that everything Ms. Matar said is absolutely right. Namely, you don't have to be the person who did the violence. The paradigmatic example used in Congress, I'm now going to refer specifically to what was said in Congress, was if you sell a pair of shoes to a Confederate soldier, knowing that Confederate soldier is going to use those shoes in battle, you are an insurrectionist. doesn't matter if your motive was to make money doesn't matter that you did no violence. If you wanted an example, once again, that supports Ms. Matar, one of the people disqualified. Yes. What this person did was they purchased a substitute to fight for them. And so the person said, hey, I stayed home. I fired a gun at no one. I just made money. The court said, no, you purchased a substitute knowing that substitute would engage in the violence. So Ms. Bedard, when she says the coordinator is responsible, the instigator is responsible, the person who sells the shoes is responsible, she's absolutely right, as a matter of both history and present law. Yeah, Add, add to that, yes, please. If I could just say one helpful thing to think about is Jefferson Davis, the leader of the Confederacy, yes. brutal civil war that happened, never picked up a gun but would very much still be disqualified (laughs) under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. He was calling the shots. He was the leadership class at that time. He was very much the mastermind, the coordinator of what happened to be a very violent, bloody civil war. So you don't necessarily have to be physically engaged, but you do. engagement is much broader than that, as has been demonstrated in history and legal precedent, modern legal precedent as well. Tell us some of that modern legal precedent. Have there been successful cases um, challenging individuals uh, running for office under the 14th Amendment? 
As mentioned, there's that case in in uh, in New Mexico. Aside from the Colorado Supreme Court case from last month, um, a few years ago there was a case in New Mexico against uh, City Commissioner Coy Griffin. That was a case brought by Crew, and that was determined that he had engaged in insurrection. But he was a a major player that day as well. He had mm-hmm. actually he was actually there at the Capitol. His statements, his physical movement, everything was considered, and he was ultimately disqualified uh, from office or removed from his post um, under Section Three of the Fourteenth Amendment. So Trump is in in company (laughs) with others. We're talking right now about the election uh, coming up in 2024 for uh, president of the United States and the challenges to Donald Trump being on the ballot uh, in violation of the 14th Amendment, being an insurrectionist. If you want to join the conversation, we would love to hear from you. You can give us a call at area code 608-256-256. 2001 extension 9 Jade our uh, producer is here we have Jay our engineer Mary Jo is staffing the phones we are all ready for your call so please join the conversation if you have any thoughts we would love to hear from you you can join us live on the air or you can pass a message on to me and we will get that to our guests any way you want to join is great area code 608-256-2001 extension 9 okay so I want to now Keep sort of moving forward with this case because there's another aspect to it. Uh, The Colorado Supreme Court decided four to three uh, that um, President Trump was in violation of the 14th Amendment, uh, did commit insurrection. But the trial court below them uh, in Colorado had an interesting argument. Uh, They did not dispute that he had engaged in insurrection. But they found that he didn't violate the 14th Amendment uh, because of his office was the presidency, not a congressional or lower level office. Talk to me about that argument and why ultimately the Colorado Supreme Court did not agree with that. Uh, Who wants to take that one first? I think it would be helpful for a professor to give the background. That'd be great. The, the claim is that for reasons that only a law professor could figure out, <laughs> the phrase officer of the United States does not include the president. Now, it's rather interesting. Many of the people who make the argument concede that everybody in 1866 thought that the president was an officer of the United States. They said that the president was an officer of the United States. We have the records that show that, that that was their intent. Okay. Yes. When you read the newspapers of the time, what do they say Section 3 does? They say Section 3 bars any person who held a federal office, who took an oath from holding a federal office again, all federal offices. What they say is because for technical reasons, one or two clauses of the Constitution do not treat the president as an officer in 1789, therefore, whether they knew it or not, they just made a terrible mistake and the president isn't included. No one has ever given a reason or a common sense reason why there would be this exclusion is just treated as a royal accident. And one might say, even if the historic evidence wasn't overwhelming in one direction, we actually have found a quote or two that says maybe the president's not an officer. There are a hundred quotes on the other side. Usually the weight of the evidence, a hundred to one, usually we think a hundred. But even if you said it's doubtful, why would you carve a present exception? Why would you say no traitors in office, except if the traitor was the president of the United States or the traitor becomes the president of the United States? You think maybe we'd exclude assistant dog catcher of, of Des Moines. Maybe that's just not enough importance. But why would you include the assistant dog catcher of Des Moines and not the president? Right. 
Right. I mean, it just doesn't seem to pass the laugh test. I served uh, as a local official on the Dane County Board here in Madison, Wisconsin, for 16 years. I took an oath of office before every uh, term that I was elected to. And the thought that I couldn't do something or a Congress member couldn't do something, um, but the president could, it, it doesn't make any sense. And how how is it that uh, the trial court judge, though, concluded as such? Um, and Attorney Matar, did you have you heard this argument before? And has well, how have other courts addressed it? Or maybe this is the first time because this is the first time the office holder is president. This this is the first time, and I I can't, you know, I can't say why the district court had decided the way it did. But as Professor Graber was saying, at least, you know, when when Trump presents his side of the the argument with regards to this specific point, it's really kind of a a textual workaround um, of, you know, there are certain offices that are specifically mentioned in Section 3. The presidency is not one of them. But the provision is quite broad in who it applies to. It says under any office of under the United States. Mm-hmm. It is quite broad. So in order to make kind of like a textual workaround, like a strategic workaround, uh, I'm not sure why the district court was, you know, preliminarily convinced of that. But it is, you know, the Supreme Court, obviously, that didn't, as you said, didn't pass the laugh test. Right, right. Well, except it, it, the argument goes on to live another day before the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, That's correct. I want to touch, before we sort of talk about what happens next when it goes to the U.S. Supreme Court, um, I want to just do a quick touch on Maine. What happened in Maine? Can I get a, th- that wasn't a, a court, but that was the Secretary of State uh, individually doing her review and coming to the same conclusion that it was a violation of the 14th Amendment. So a conversation or a claim under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment can come about, you know, typically one of two ways. There's um, through objections, voter objections to a court or to a ballot law commission that receives candidate filings, candidate papers, and hears objections to those papers. That's one way of going about it. But another way is chief election officials in each state, depending on the state law, have certain authority, certain power to be able to determine what candidates are qualified for office and what candidates are not. In Maine, that is precisely what the Secretary of State did. They determined that Trump was not eligible for office under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. And this has been a conversation that Free Speech for People has been involved in over the past year. So sending letters to different secretaries of states across the country, letting them know Mm -hmm. that, hey, you have authority under the Constitution. You yourself took an oath of the Constitution to uphold the Constitution. And for that reason, you can't let an insurrectionist on the ballot. Not only that, but there's also state law that requires you to review, analyze, um, and ultimately object to certain candidates who are disqualified from office. For instance, if there's a five-year-old who wants to run for president, obviously their candidate filings would be uh, thrown out. There are certain qualification standards that a chief election official has to make sure that the candidate surpasses. Um, And this has been a campaign for a while to let chief election officials know that they do have the option themselves to make this determination. And And that's exactly what the main secretary did. And do you think other secretaries of state across the country um, are considering making the same decision? Uh, Perhaps they're waiting to see what the U.S. Supreme Court uh, decides um, or should we anticipate other decisions coming We've certainly seen discussion of secretaries of state about either one of two ways. One, that they don't, they claim that they don't have the capacity or the authority to do it. And so they decide for that reason they're not going to do it, but that they'll respect any court holding that tells them otherwise. Hmm. We've seen that from several secretaries of state. But what I will say is that we've seen kind of a strategy of like punting the question down the road. Yeah. You know, pe- people kind of want this this question to be addressed by somebody else. And it just so happens that the Supreme Court is now sitting on that question. And I think people will probably perhaps wait to see what Waiting the to Supreme hear. Court says 
in order to take action themselves. But that is not required. We do have a caller that wants to join us. Um, I want to remind everyone, if you want to join the conversation, we would love to hear from you at area code 608-256-2001, extension 9. Evan, you had a question about insurrection versus protests. When does it rise to the insurrection level? Hello, hello. Thanks for the great conversation. Um, I would like to propose a scenario to the two guests. Um, okay. And it's a sort of if the shoe is on the other foot, uh, it's in the future. Um, let's say a Republican like Trump has won and is now uh, the administration. Uh, and the National Park Service uh, imposes a resistance, uh, you know, begins to resist the orders uh, of the president. And the like, let's say the president is uh, issues an order to strip mine all the national parks of coal and the airports are shut down because there's a Muslim country travel ban. And so then protesters go there uh, and let's say even surround the white house, something like that, some okay. kind of mass okay. general strike. Could they contrast that? And what if the tr the president of that time invoked some kind of insurrection clause? Like how far would that go? like Marjorie Taylor Greene introduces a motion as a Senate majority leader and says, I'm introducing okay. uh, insurrection. Okay. Professor Graber, I, I mean, this specifically makes me think about your point of the level of violence, that it's not just protesting, but it's rising to a level of violence. Protesting is, you know, to an extent protected by the First Amendment, Um uh, can you help give us some guidance on this question of when does protest sort of cross the line? You've sort of answered the question. And that is, protest is an effort to persuade people through argument or through what we call force of numbers. But the force of numbers is not violence. The force of numbers, there are a lot of us. We vote. We take this seriously. That's perfectly legitimate in the American system. Now, we also know in the common law, new and constitutional law new, that there are people in a protest that go beyond legitimate protests and are violent. The question, however, is for the organizers, the people responsible. Were they attempting to resist federal law through protest, through persuasion, through their numbers, or were they violently interfering? So, for example, now come people who are enforcing the ban, and the protest movement says, whenever you see a police officer enforcing the Muslim ban, attack the police officer. And police officers are attacked throughout the country. Now we have an insurrection. Mm -hmm. But if the protesters say, whenever we think the Muslim ban is enforced, turn out with banners, make noise. And somebody in the crowd just decides to be a hero in his own mind or her own mind. That's not an insurrection. Thank you for... for... Yeah, the bottom line is, was the intention of the assemblage to protest, to protest vigorously, or to resist by violence? And it's a fact question. Mm-hmm. Makes me think about your comment earlier on the show where you said if Donald Trump had driven up and said, "Hey, wait, what are you doing? Don't uh, don't storm the Capitol. Don't don't do any of that." How that could have been a moment of change in the definition of ins of whether he was part of the insurrection or not. Um, thank you very much for rearticulating that and, and responding to this. So, I want to sort of move on to what happens at the U.S. Supreme Court. Now, again, here we are with all of us. We think we're so smart of when you initially heard the Colorado decision. You thought, what? He's not committed of a crime. And thank you for clarifying. Uh, it's been great to talk to both of you today to help delineate. This is not about committing a crime. It's, it's different. 
And you think, oh, it's going to the U.S. Supreme Court. Fine. You know, six to three, six uh, uh, justices that have been appointed by Republican uh, presidents, three justices that have been appointed by Democratic presidents. Uh, It's just going to sort of follow along party lines. But I've been reading how that's not necessarily what people think is going to happen. What do we think is going to happen? Uh, uh, what is really the what the justices at the U.S. Supreme Court are considering right now? Professor Graber, you want to sort of start us with that of a little bit of just the historical precedents and and what's happening right now in in the process at the U.S. Supreme Court? Well, this is less history, but I can tell you what we might call the Professor Coalition for disqualification. The all-powerful professors who, according to some people, rule the world. Our coalition is bipartisan, not simply professors. If you read the New York Times, David French, who is very conservative, has come out for disqualification. Michael Paulson and Will Border wrote a very influential article. Yes, yes. Our members of the Federalist Society... I debated David Fromm on disqualification. He has since changed his mind. He's a very prominent former National Review person. Conservative great, legal minds. Yeah, yep. A great many conservatives are coming out for disqualification because they recognize in some ways that Donald Trump is not normal politics. That I think it was David Fromm had a wonderful line about Hillary Clinton, wrong within normal parameters. So we might say... Nikki Haley, from my liberal perspective, is wrong within normal parameters. She's got policy things I think are wrong, but when she loses an election, she says, you know, I'll get them next time. Mm -hmm. So one of the things we don't know about even the Republicans on the Supreme Court, are they thinking like David French, like David Fromm, like Bowdoin Paulson, Ilya Summon, another, another prominent um, conservative, beating the drum for disqualification? Or are they thinking like Donald Trump? And, you know, the, the Chief Justice and I, we don't talk regularly, <laughs> to say the least. But if ever there was a case where the court wanted to escape the image of being a Republican-dominated court, this would be a good one. Yes, Yes. Attorney Matar, what are your thoughts of, of what's going to happen when it goes before the Supreme Court? I have two main points that I want to talk about. I think, one, it's important to remember that this is a nonpartisan issue. This is a neutral constitutional principle. Um, and it's being reviewed by really skilled, highly qualified legal masterminds um, who are more than capable of looking at the legislative history, the intent, the facts. We have originalists, textualists on the Supreme Court who, although might have been nominated by the same party that Trump comes from, might look at Section 3 of the 14th Amendment differently through an, an originalist, textualist perspective. So there's there's really no telling which way the Supreme Court will go. But what I will say is that there, there are different avenues it could take. It could potentially resolve the issue, could potentially not. It could potentially lead um, avenues for, you know, leaving the door open for states to make the decision. There are a different multitude of ways that it can it can decide. And I, I don't have, I, I can't predict the future, no, so obviously well. I can't tell. No. But um, it is, there are so many different ways that it can go. I wouldn't say it's ever a straight and shoe of them you know, finding one way or another. Did you? Could I? Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll slip ahead. in and say well, one of my favorite teaching stories of understanding the Supreme Court and why it has a relationship to politics, but not necessarily one we think, is Richard Nixon appointed judges who he said, I'm going to promise you these judges will take the side of the prosecutor and not the defendant. And what happened after he appointed all these judges? Richard Nixon appears before the court 
and he's more in the posture of a defendant. And <laughs> all the Nixon judges did exactly what Nixon wanted. They took the side of the prosecutor. Now, we have Trump appointing justices who say they take the text and the original intention seriously. The text and original intention very clearly call for disqualification. Trump's strongest arguments, I don't think they're strong enough, but the strongest ones are all living constitutional <laughs> arguments. So what we might find is Trump gets exactly what he wants, originalist, and they disqualify him, just as Nixon got exactly what he wanted, pro-prosecutor judges. And they said, give him the tapes. Is there any concern that, I mean, now I'm asking you sort of to step out of your your your, your legal expertise and into the right the world of all of us as U.S. residents. Is there any concern of the impact that this decision could have on society uh, here in the the U.S. and acknowledging that the Supreme Court justices must be thinking about that and how they've sort of tried to dodge political, current political issues in the past, um, the, the complexity that that plays, that this is uh, the current Republican presidential frontrunner uh, in, in, in the U.S. right now. Just wanted to get your thoughts on that. I know, I know it's tricky. That's not your expertise, but that certainly plays into it, I feel. Well, the example I like to use is you're registering voters and a talking horse walks up and it's very clear this talking horse is quite intelligent. And someone says, you know, we've never registered a talking horse before. But another person says, but we've never not registered a talking horse before. So when we talk, people say, well, what about the impact of disqualification? It's unprecedented. But Trump is unprecedented. Mm -hmm. We've never disqualified a person like Donald Trump. We have never not disqualified a person like Donald Trump. Both sorts of decisions will have impacts. What the Constitution says and the framers decided, because remember, Jefferson Davis, Robert E. Lee, really popular people with strong followings. The Constitution has told us as a matter of law, it is better to disqualify the person who, if they lose the vote, turns to violence, than risk our democratic institutions by allowing them to govern because if we allow people to vote for Donald Trump in 2024, there may be far fewer people who vote in 2026 or 2028. Hmm. Interesting. I appreciate that perspective. Attorney Matar, what are your thoughts? An interesting thought experiment is if what happened on January 6, 2021, and all of the violence that we saw is not considered an insurrection. And those who participated are not considered insurrectionists and are not disqualified mm -hmm. from office. Then what does reach the level of section three of the 14th amendment? This was quite unprecedented in our history. Well, you know, we have obviously examples, but if that is not considered an insurrection, then what, what would be? Mm -hmm. What would be more violent enough? What would be what would trigger this this provision of the Constitution that is meant to protect it from exactly what happened on January 6th? So we have just a few minutes left. Our final, I, I sort of wanted to get final thoughts of what happens now. What uh, should the people that are listening to the show pay attention to think about how can they follow along with what the Supreme Court does, but also what happens after that? Um, how can they pay attention? And maybe part of it is to 
uh, go to the website and follow along with some of the work that Free Speech for the People is doing. Um, Attorney Matar, I'll start with you. I will say, obviously, the the Colorado Supreme Court ruling um, and the Supreme Court review of it is extremely important. Uh, but there are other also cases going on that contemplate this question. Free okay. Speech for People has filed in uh, Illinois and Massachusetts. Those are currently pending, and we should have decisions quite soon on those. The ballot commissions there are determining whether Trump is disqualified from the ballot. The main case is chugging along as well, the Secretary of State's decision. Uh, so there, and you know, there are other cases across the country where this question is being contemplated, not just you know, the, the Supreme Court. Um, and people should follow that. So if they'd like, they can follow our website, which is freespeechforpeople.org or trumpisdisqualified.org. Fantastic. Thank you. Professor Graber, final words here. Well, in this campaign, people have said a Secretary of State shouldn't make the decision. Congress shouldn't make the decision. The Supreme Court shouldn't make the decision. Who should make the decision? Well, there's one set of people everybody agrees have a right to make decision, and that's voters. So beyond anything we say, I think courts and secretary of states can make the decision. Beyond anything I'll say to ask the people listening, do you believe Donald Trump was an officer of the United States? Do you believe he took an oath of allegiance to the United States? Do you believe he attempted to overturn the 2024 national election? Do you believe he welcomed the violence in the attempt? Do you believe the presidency is an office of the United States? If you believe these things, then I think you have a constitutional obligation not to support Donald Trump in any way and find some other candidate many of whom advocate policies Donald Trump approves and support that candidate. Well, it's been wonderful talking with the both of you. I really appreciate uh, you joining us today and, and helping us get a better understanding of what's going on. Um, Amira Matar, Counsel for Free Speech for People, and Professor Mark Grabo, um, Graber, Professor um, of Law at the University of Maryland School of Law. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. And a huge thank you to Jade for producing, Shali, our news director, Jay for engineering, Mary Jo for staffing the phones. Thank you all for all your great work. You are listening to WORT 89.9 FM Madison. Stay warm out there, everybody. We'll see you again next week. We're